He prepared a table before me. Jesus prepares a table before you. The table is set before you. He extends to you an invitation to come dine with him. Let that sink in for a moment because this isn't a once and done type of invitation. This is a every day, every moment invitation like no other. Jesus prepared a table for you. There is no greater invitation than this. What is your response? How will you respond to that RSVP? You see, he desires to have what the Bible would call table fellowship with you. Table fellowship is a big deal, especially in the, in the Middle East. It's so significant. Like to us, we always think about like, hey, let's have dinner together. Let's eat and have a great meal and laugh a lot. And it's a good time. It's a way to build friendships, right? But there was a powerful symbol that was connected to table fellowship in Judaism. Table fellowship meant way more than just breaking bread, having a few laughs, and having a good time and eating food. It really became a social statement about yourself and the person you're dining with. To have table fellowship with someone meant you accept them and they accept you. Absolutely powerful. In fact, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees, who were the, the conservative party of Judaism, they really took table fellowship serious to the degree that they created 229 rules that you had to follow in order to have table fellowship. I'll just give you a handful, okay? It determines who you could have table fellowship with who you can't have it with. And it determines what foods you can eat and what foods you can't eat and how to be cleansed before you eat and how to be cleansed during and after you ate. There was a lot of religious rules and social concerns that was wrapped up around table fellowship. And along comes Jesus. And in the gospel, he completely clashes with all of the religious and cultural norms of table fellowship. He was known as a person who would eat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, the unclean. That was against one of the 229 rules. You couldn't do that because to have table fellowship with someone means you welcome them fully and you accept them. Jesus was saying, the unclean, the sinners, your enemies, I accept at my table. And not only did that provide opportunities for life change to those who invited, were, who received that invitation to come to the table, it actually, can I say this word, pissed off a lot of people. It offended people. I can't believe he would have dinner with that person. Does he not know? Why would he do that? I thought he was one of us. How can he be a rabbi? This is a powerful image. And I need us to understand this because when we think about this invitation to the table, Jesus is inviting you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been or what's been done to you. Like you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be clean enough. You don't have to be religious enough to order to receive this invitation. He extends this invitation to you 
just as you are. He welcomes you to his table because he accepts you because he knows that when you dine with him and when you start to partake with what he has prepared on the table, it will change your life. What will you do? Because our good shepherd, as it says in Psalm 23, has prepared a table before you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And this actually, just for fun, this, this image of a shepherd, there was a, there was a norm that shepherds, when people would come into their tent, any wanderer, any guest, whatever that guest's character is, whatever their past is, whatever they're bringing in, that shepherd is to receive that person as if they are a guest from God himself. That shepherd then takes on the full responsibility of that person's shalom, their well-being, their provision, while that individual is under his tent at his table. The Lord is my shepherd. He's prepared a table before me. God is welcoming you to his table. Now, I think it's fair to ask, if he's prepared a table, what's on the menu? Like, what, what is on the table? What, like, what can I expect at this table? Now, how many of you do this, okay? Now, no judgment in folks who are listening up north, no judgment. But my wife and I and our family, we moved from Minnesota. In the town we lived in, there weren't a lot of options to choose from when you wanted to go out to eat. Right? And so it's just like everything was just kind of like, okay. But when we moved here to Austin, it was like so many options. It was absolutely overwhelming. You could like put a blindfold on, spin around, and just throw a dart at the wall, and you go to that restaurant. And for us, it was amazing. Like every restaurant was amazing. There was this thing called flavor we didn't know existed. And it was just like awesome. And so it's like, we just like ate out and ate out. And yes, I gained a lot of weight and all that kind of stuff. But here's the problem. After five years, we became food snobs. Food snobs, anybody? <laughs> like, like, every restaurant was great. Now, we have to do the Yelp thing, right? Like, you got to look at the reviews. You got to know what they say. You look at the website. Does the website look good? Then you want to know, like, especially my wife, she's always asking me if I make the reservation. Like, how should we dress? I don't care. I never pay attention to that. Jeans, hoodie, sandals always works, in my opinion. Doesn't matter. Is it dress? Is it casual? Is it nice? Who cares? Sandals are fine. Just saying. But like we want to know. We look at the menu because we want to know what's served. And then, and then, then you got to do the thing that like I know you do too. You got to look at the pictures that customers have taken of the food. Like you got to know. You want to know what you're getting into. Like you want to know what's going to be prepared ahead of time. So what's on the menu, Jesus? You prepared a table before me. That's great. But what is on the menu? Now, let's stretch our imaginations. I know we're talking about food, and I know our stomachs start to churn and all that kind of stuff, but we're not talking about the food that your stomach is craving. We're going to talk about the food that your soul is craving. Because what is ultimately on the menu 
is God himself. It's himself. And that is offered to us. It's given to us in the form of promises. Through a covenant. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, it's a powerful little verse. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now look at this. By which he has granted his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of the sinful desire. We get to know him. We get to partake in the divine. We get to commune with him through partaking and upholding these precious and very great promises. Like that's remarkable in of itself. And we look at 1 Corinthians 1.20 and it tells us that every promise that God has made is a yes because of Jesus. So every promise that God makes is like absolutely guaranteed. If you look at like Numbers 23 verse 19, it tells us that like everything that God has said has to happen. God cannot lie. He is not like us. Anybody in this room kept every promise you've made? God doesn't break any of his promises. How many of you have ever experienced when you did that whole Yelp thing and you looked at the menu and you, went, you even got to the point where you're like, this is what I want. And you go to the menu and you're so excited. You're like, I can't wait to eat this thing. And the waiter comes and you give the order and they're like, so sorry we're out of that. God will never say that. His promises will never change. They're never out of season. It never runs out. There's an abundance. And what I love about this is that there are four main promises that all of the promises that God has made hangs off of. And it's wrapped up really in the celebration of Passover that God gave the nation of Israel that's found all the way back in Exodus 6.6. I want to encourage you to turn there with me for a moment. In Exodus chapter 6, we see here what the Jewish people would call the four I wills of God. And they're represented four different cups that they would celebrate and remember during the Passover. And these four cups represented four key promises that God promised to do to Israel and promises to do for us. And it's these four cups is what is on the menu. And it's through these four cups and these four promises where we will come to understand who we are and, and, and more important, come to know more of who Jesus is. In Exodus 6, verse 6, we see these four I wills. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. First one, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's cup one. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. That's cup number two. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. That's cup three. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out of from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's cup four. I will save you. I will deliver you. 
I will redeem you, and I will make you. That's what's on the table. That's what's there waiting for us. I want to talk about each of these promises because we need to come to this table. We need to respond to this invitation. And not just once, but every day, we're able to engage in these promises. And as we partake in these precious and very great promises, we get to know him more. We get to understand what freedom in Christ is. We get to understand what being restored is. And we finally get to understand what life to the full is. But you have to come. You see, this first cup is what they would call the cup of salvation. I will save you or I will rescue you from the bondage of Egypt. They were slaves in the nation of Egypt for 400 years, captive, nothing they could do. They had no freedom. They had no rights. And that is the picture that we have under sin. We all need saving. We all have fallen short. Have you done something wrong in your life? Yes? You all don't think you're sinners. (laughs) Is anybody in this room been perfect. Sin, it has another imagery of like archery, about missing the mark. It's like you got to hit the bullseye every time. And if you don't hit the bullseye, they would consider that sin. Now imagine life and death is on the line. If you don't hit that bullseye every single time, and you're just a little bit off, it's not good enough. Sin means we have missed the mark Every time. There is no one righteous. Not one. No one seeks God. We are all have fallen. We have all gone astray. We have all fallen to sin. So therefore we are all under the tyranny of sin and death. We are trapped to it. You ever have those moments where you want to do something good? You have that desire, which Paul talks about clearly in Romans 7, and then you try to do it and you end up not doing it because you feel like you just can't? Well, that's called sin. We see sin everywhere. We feel the effects everywhere. We hurt people all the time and people hurt us all the time. And because of the effects of sin, insecurities reign and pride reigns in our life. Trust is is questionable at best. And we're oftentimes emotionally unstable. We don't really know who we are. We don't really trust God. We don't really trust other people. We're skeptical about the future. We're lost. And everything that we feel is more than just like being bad. What we really feel is a spiritual death, which is what the Bible describes. Like when you are under sin, you are not just like bad. You are actually dead in sin. You are spiritually dead. And dead people, they can't do anything. We can't get ourselves out of this condition. We need one to rescue us. And this is the promise that is made in the first cup. I will save you. Jesus came and made a way. Jesus came and took the concept of Passover and pointed it to himself in the last week before he went to the cross. And in Luke chapter 22, I believe it is, he said to his disciples, he's like, I'm giving you a new covenant. 
This body that you're going to eat, this bread, represents my broken body for you. And this wine that you're going to drink represents my blood that will be poured out for you. And when you do this, you're doing this in remembrance of me. Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb so that he could save us, rescue us from sin's grip on our lives, to resurrect us, to make us alive in Christ. And it's only through Jesus that we're able to come to this table. You see, this cup is something that we drink once. We are saved once. We, you do not, I, let me just step on some toes. I do not care what your theology is. Scripture's clear. You cannot lose your salvation. If you can lose it, that means you can earn it. And you can't earn it. It's by grace. And once you're saved, it's a one-time deal. But however, we drink from this cup once to be saved eternally. But we need to drink from this cup to remind ourselves daily that apart from Jesus, I'm stuck in sin. And because of Jesus, I'm a new creation. And let's just be honest. How many of us, friends, come on. How many of us have gotten bored with our salvation? I mean, like, when, when have you done something absolutely crazy because you remember the joy of your salvation? When's the last time you just wept because of the joy of your salvation? That's why we need to come to this table and drink of this cup. And that leads right into the second cup. I will deliver you from slavery seems a little redundant. It's like, wait, I thought you just rescued me from sin and now you're going to deliver me from slavery. Aren't they one and the same? Ha ha. Tricky. One-time deal. This is the process. Because even though you may be saved and even though you may have said yes to Jesus, we still live like a slave. We still live captivated by the desires of sin in the flesh. We still need to have our minds renewed. We still don't see ourselves rightly. We still don't always see God rightly. Even though we are free, we don't oftentimes live free. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2 to work out your salvation. Now work for your salvation. Now you've been saved. Now you come and keep renewing your mind. Allow him, allow this interaction, allow the truth of Christ to begin to liberate you, to free you, to no longer live as a sin or a slave to sin. Paul says this over and over and over in Romans. Do not consider yourselves anymore alive to sin. You are dead to sin, alive to Christ. The life I now live, I live his life. This is the concept of surrendering daily and walking and carrying our cross to live for him. Like this is so important. Because I, 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 I'm just telling you, like a lot of times, like when we hear this word deliverance, like we, we kind of get like our, our charismatic hat on a little bit and we get a little bit scared. 
And we start thinking, well, deliverance, does that mean like floating bodies, demons, spinning heads? Yeah, maybe. But it also means if you are still stuck in a habit, in an addiction, a way of thinking, sin, you need deliverance from that. When we remind ourselves First, he invites us to his table, just as we are. And then we remind ourselves, oh my goodness, while I was an enemy of Christ, he died for me because he loved me. That gives us the courage to bring our sins into the light and to not keep it in the darkness. Friends, this is why you need community. If you're not in a small group, if you're not in some kind of community, pursuing Jesus together, coming to his table together, you will have a hard time drinking from this cup because we need to confess our sins, not only to God, but to each other. And you need to be in a community and committed to each other because we're all invited to the table because we're all in the same place. We all need saving and we all need to be delivered from our sins to walk in freedom. Jesus says, if you hold on to my truth, the truth will set you free. You keep walking. And then that moves into the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of restoration. I will redeem you. I love this picture of redemption because it not only speaks about like buying back, it also speaks of restoring back to its original purpose. You see, when he saved you, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, we look at oftentimes verses 1 through 9, we're like, man, we are a wretch, we're under his wrath, we're dead in our sin, but God who is rich in grace has saved us, and it's not by works, but it's through him, and we receive it by faith. But verse 10 tells us that he's prepared good works in advance for us, and that in Philippians says that he will finish the good work that he started inside of us, which means there is a purpose in your life. Like when you come to the table, he begins again to restore and to redeem all that has been lost and begin to show you who you are, to begin to understand how God sees you. That's so incredibly important for us to continue to grow more and more into understanding how God sees us and how we should see ourselves through his lens. Why does he redeem us? Because we were created in the image of God and sin has marred that. The enemy has plans for you. I'm not sure you know that, but he does. And Jesus makes it very clear in John 10, 10. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop once you become saved. I mean, he's going to keep going. He doesn't want you to live out the promise that Jesus gives. But I have come that you may have life to the full. Jesus said in John 15 that he's appointed you to produce fruit, fruit that will last. 
that can only happen through this cup of restoration. He offers it to you. You have to partake in it. The cup of salvation, the cup of freedom, the cup of restoration, and it leads us to this last cup that God is making us into his people. You see, in the New Testament, Peter would call it this way, we are the priesthood. We are now the temple of God being built up. We are the church. God is using us. We are living for something greater, a greater purpose together. This is the cup of praise. That's what they would call this. The cup of praise. Not just like singing and rejoicing, but this was, it's so beautiful. This cup of praise really means you're living a life of praise. A life of meaning and purpose. What's fascinating how many of you are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's something we all learned and probably have forgotten. But like one of the highest needs was like transcendence or living for a greater purpose. It's fascinating. It's almost as if God knew that. This is what's on the menu. This is what he's inviting you to. This is where the precious and very great promises are. We need this every day. I need to come to God's table to remind myself, God so loved me that he sent his one and only son, not to condemn me, but to save me. Not because I was good enough, just because he loves me. He died for me. He wants me to be free. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He wants me to see the fruit of the Spirit, no longer the fruit of sin. I can come because I know I'm no longer underneath the grips of guilt and shame and condemnation. Because shame and guilt have no room at this table because if you're in Christ Jesus, you're no longer under condemnation. Who's there to accuse if Jesus, God himself, has justified me. Man, yeah, I want to drink from this cup. I need to be delivered. I still wrestle with shame and guilt. And I still don't believe that I have purpose. I still wrestle with that. I still don't think that God sees greatness in me. Like, come on, like, think about this for a moment. Allow me to go here for a second. What comes into your mind right now if I were to say, you are the apple of God's eye. What just went through your mind? Is it hard to believe? How, how, how can that be? I mean, I know what I did last night. I know what I thought last night, this week. He loves you. He is pleased with you. Do you feel accusations and lies and condemnations and shame swirling in your mind? Who of you parents 
with kids. Don't want to see your kids live out their potential. I hope none of you raise your hands. Of course we do. We want them to be great. We want to see the best and we want to pull it out. And when your kids start saying things about themselves like, I'm no good, I'm bad, what do we do as parents? We say, stop it. Let me redeem that thought. You are not a bad kid. You're a good kid and God loves you. You made a bad decision, but you are loved. And God saves you and he can forgive you and he can restore you. You, that's why we need to come here. Like this cup of redemption, of restoration is so important because there are so many of us that do not believe that God thinks that we have potential, that we have something to offer. But when you come and you drink first of the cup of salvation, you remember what he's done. And then you drink from the cup of freedom. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's no accusations. And you start thinking about this. He's created me with works prepared in advance to do. I get to live for him. And I get to do it with other people. That's what's on the menu. So the question I have for you is what will you You see, faith is needed to receive this invitation. Faith is needed. He's prepared a table before you. I don't care if you believe it or not, there's a table prepared before you. Will you receive that invitation and come? Hebrews 11 verse 5 and 6 tells us that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. And I love this little verse about Enoch that he was commended as having pleased God because he had faith. And you look at Genesis 5, he's the only person that had a whole list that would say he walked with God. But then in verse 6, tells us, look at this, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Like, do you figure like going like, wait, 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 you're telling, I can please God? I, I can make, like, I can bring pleasure? Like God created you to commune with him at the table. He is pleased when you choose faith. Like, think about that. If Right now, if you choose to come to his table and to partake in these promises, he's pleased. And faith requires two things. First, believe that God exists. Of course. Every single human being has once thought, is there a God? And I'm sorry, if there is no God, you would never have that thought to begin with. But then the second part of faith is to believe that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, believe that when you come and partake, these promises are guaranteed. He will reward those. So will you come? Will you respond to his RSVP? At his table, there's always more than enough 
You can be in the driest season of your life. And like it says in Psalm 78, 19, he can prepare a table for you in the desert. Jesus is the bread of life. He is our living water. And what he has prepared for us at the table, like it says in Psalm 104, 15, tells us that it revives us. He's, he gives us wine to brighten our faces, right? Like oil or wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Like it's so good. Why wouldn't you receive this invitation of dying with Jesus? Because guess what? When you die and go to heaven, whew, you're going to be at a table. And you're going to want to be at that table because brisket is served. <laughs> Revelation 19. Sorry, maybe sacrilege, but let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the land has come and his bride has made herself ready. The church, us together, verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Next verse. The angel said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited. This is speaking of eternal life. And you can't come to that table unless you first come to this table and drink of this cup. So church, my challenge for us First and foremost, if you have never come to Jesus' table and you've never drinking from the cup of salvation because maybe you never thought you were good enough to come to the table, come to the table. He wants to have fellowship with you there and drink from this cup of salvation. It's what he has done. In a few short moments, we're going to celebrate communion. But church, for those of us who have drank from this cup of salvation, for those of us who say Jesus is our Lord, I want to challenge you this year to reprioritize things in your life. Because here's a fact. Every yes you say to something is a no to something. And everything you say no to is a yes to something. And I want to challenge you, the more than you ever had before, say yes to Jesus. If you've never been in a group and, and all you've had were excuses because you're too busy, readjust your schedule. It's that important. If you don't have times with the Lord, little devotionals, prayer times, check-ins, whatever it is, say yes to that and no to something else. It's that important. We as a church, we provide environments and opportunities for you in community to pursue Jesus. Take advantage of them. We want to encourage you to do that. 
But secondly, there's a really sad picture that I think a lot of times we in the church are extremely guilty of. Revelation chapter 3. And this is how I want to end, and this is where I want us to be thinking about as we come to the Lord's table. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea. And a lot of us know this passage if you've been in church circles. Verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would you either be cold or hot? So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a really nice English translation because the actual word is vomit. Like, think about that. Like, that's, that's strong. For you say, you church, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. At one point, Jesus was everything. At one point, Jesus was their desire of their heart. At one point, Jesus was all they wanted. But over time, they became again dependent and fixated on their own things. To the point they say, I don't know if I really need Jesus And what you find is then a Jesus plus type of relationship. You say, I'm rich, I'm prospered, I need nothing. And Jesus says, you're not realizing that you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor and blind and naked. I counsel you, I urge you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments, and so on and so forth. And then look at this, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Ah, oh, that, that, that should not be. That's a picture of Jesus saying, I'm no longer in the church. I'm no longer in your life. Like, you, you love me and you're still doing things for me and all that kind of stuff. But I am outside the door. <laughs> and I'm knocking. I mean, he's not doing that. You know, he's just, Hey. I'm outside. Behold, look, I'm here. And if you open the door, I will come in and I will dine with you again. We can start over again. And I love it. You don't have to prepare the table in your house. Jesus is going to come into your house, into your place, into our church and lay out the table. Here. Let's remember these four things. So maybe that's where you're at. Maybe, maybe Jesus is outside saying, hey, I'm here. Come in. Let me just finish this real quick. Or maybe you just turned the volume up, <laughs> drowning it out. Because we've never ignored a doorbell before. Especially now with the net. If you don't have your communion element, I want to encourage you just to grab it in the back, or maybe we could have some folks just pass it out if we don't if you don't have it. 